Hello, this is Joshua Bell with the Kilt and the Cloth. This was my sermon from October 3rd, 2021, entitled, When Word Gives Way to the Word. I hope you enjoy, and God bless. My scripture this morning is taken from the book of Hebrews. As I've lost my page, might be a shorter sermon. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 12. If you'd like to follow along as I read aloud, it is found in your New Testament sections in the Pew Bibles on page 203. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being, and he sustains all things by his powerful word. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited, and is more excellent than theirs. Now God did not subject the coming world about which we are speaking to angels. But someone who has testified somewhere what are human beings that you are mindful of them, or mortals that you care for them, you have made them for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned them with glory and honor, subjecting all things under their feet. Now, in subjecting all things to them, God left nothing outside their control. As it is, we do not yet see everything everything in subjection to them. But we do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many children to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. It's for this reason Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. May God bless the reading of God's holy scripture. Amen. This passage of scripture is always presented kind of as an enigma to those that analyze literary forms. For example, as we read the book of Hebrews, we kind of tend to, at this day and age, tend to believe that the book of Hebrews is a, is a collection of sermons or sermonettes that come and have discussion about the way that Jesus is in the world. And right off the bat, we have a very high Christology at the very beginning of Hebrews. Now, when I see the word Christology, it means that all of the focus is on the, the image of Christ. For example, 
The high Christology that reoccurs through Hebrews is here described by the use of seven different clauses. Let's go through them. Number one, Jesus is the heir of all things. Two, the agency through which God created all things. Three, the radiant light of God's glory. Four, the exact representation of God. Five, the one who sustains all of creation. And six, the one who made purification for sin. And then the last one, seven, the one who sits at God's right hand. And that's a lot to chew on as one sermon. You can take each one of those and make your own sermon based off of those ideas. But the writer here in Hebrews is trying to make sure that we understand the nature in which the words gave way to the word. In the New Testament, we find that the word logos is used all over the place. Specifically in the Gospel of John, it's the I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the word becomes flesh. It's from those moments that we have this discussion. And then here... It's not that Logos is different, but Logos is different. The word has been spoken, and now the word is to be lived out in what we call the Imago Christus. Now I'm going to use some fancy words that I learned in seminary. You ready? Here it comes. In the first century, one of the biggest issues was the understanding of Imago Dei, which is the image of God. What does the image of God look like? And it's represented throughout history in all kinds of ways. You see it in stained glass windows. You see it in Byzantine floor tiles. You see it in the, in the ways that they'd write poetry or hymns. But the image of God is what the, the world is trying to project. But Jesus doesn't mess that up. He just adds to it. So the issue that I've always found, and I, I like to bring to the table, was this so what is the imago Christus at the time, or Christos? How does that look? Well, we keep using that language, right? The image of Christ. For us in the Christian church, disciples of Christ, that's all of you. We believe in the priesthood of all believers. It's important that you understand that it's not just because of the preacher says so, or your deacons say so, or your elders say so, or... The staff says so. It is literally believing that you all are, guess what? You get to use a fancy word when you leave today, the Imago Christos in the world. All the way since the first century. And then we have to talk about the angels. Let's break it all down for a little bit. Becoming the heir of all things. God promises all of the earth, gives us dominion over the earth to take care of it, to, to maintain it. Now you become the heir of all things because of Jesus Christ. In the agency which God created all things. We could talk all day long about the radiant light of God's glory. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the, the light. Now the part that I've always found fascinating here is, is that this writer is saying that Jesus is the exact image or the exact representation of God. 
You know, the one who sustains all of creation. Jesus would have looked just like each and every one of us. It changes the mission, you see. If you are to be the image of Christ, that people should see God through you. Like people could see God through Jesus. It becomes your role as you go out into the world. So if that's the case, then Jesus is, the, the writer wants you to understand there's a difference here between the eternal, where the angels are, and the temporal, where we are, that Jesus was even there with them. Coincidentally, angels are not written about very much in our Bible. Most of everything that you talk about comes from what we call the book of Enoch, an ancient text. And all of the things that they understand about angels, we don't talk about very much. But there's an idea that angels are the celestial beings. In some cultures, they say that those celestial beings were there as God created the heavens and the earth. As God hovered over the water. The angels would have been before that. It's an interesting conversation. And this writer is saying that Jesus was with them. But then he flips it and says that God even puts us above them in that moment. It's a weird conversation. Why would the writer want to put these two groups in contrast? What danger did these people face? Sometimes we have a problem with understanding what it means to be the revelation of Christ in the world. If you are to be the image of Christ, that means in the midst of people's suffering and pain, you are to be that voice of God, that comforting voice. But you're not supposed to keep it to yourself. Now I remember what I said at 8.15. You're not supposed to keep this to yourself. If Jesus goes and tells us to go all over the world and do all of these things, then you are to do the same. Not just your deacons, not just your elders, not just your pastor. You are to be the voice of God in the, in the midst of the chaos. And it's hard. <laughs> Nobody wants to invite people to church. I... I'm your minister, and I struggle with it probably more than all of you. Maybe it has something to do with the fact that when I was a kid and I was being brought up in the church, that I didn't want to talk to people about church because it's either you went to church or you burned in hell. And I didn't like that conversation about God. Or I loved the conversations that said, well, if I didn't get baptized, I didn't get my ticket. You know, the ticket on the gospel train to God, to heaven, right? I thought God was bigger than that. That God encompassed more than that. And I decided I didn't want to invite people to church. And I've struggled with this as I've gotten older. As I've gotten older, I come to this point where I'm like, well, when people ask me what I do, I say I work with a lot of people. 
Well, what does that mean? Well, I work with a lot of people in uh, good days and bad days. Oh, oh, okay. Because I have found that there's a stigma that comes along with when people ask me what I do and I say, well, I'm a preacher. I think the best example of this is, is the idea of being in, in waiting to board a plane in an airport. When you, when you sit there in that little lobby, right, and there's the, 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 the entrance to the gateway, and there's always those god-awful benches that you sit on that are, that are uncomfortable on purpose because they don't want you to sit and get comfortable. They just want you to sit there while they're waiting to shuffle you on like cattle into this long cylindrical tube. And all of us are anxious, right? We're all scared. If we're going to be totally honest about this, we're all nervous about what's going to happen when we get on the plane. Have they checked the maintenance? Is my seatbelt going to be okay? Who's the person sitting in this area that I have to sit next to? And my brain goes into dark places, people. My brain goes into, am I going to have to sit like this the whole flight? Or am I going to have to sit okay? Or the other one is, am I going to sit next to that person that takes their shoes off? What if they take their shoes off and they start clipping their toenails? Then there's the other part of that where you start going, and what if they start clipping their toenails and their feet smell like Fritos? My brain just goes to dark places, and the whole time, all of us are anxious and not wanting to get into this place, but we find ourselves there just the same, heading to a new place, a new destination. And you know how this goes, right? You get on the plane and you sit next to the person <laughs> and it's super awkward because you don't know how that person's going to be. It could be the person that does not want to talk to anyone and they're very obvious. They've already put on their, their eye mask. They've put on their neat little neck pillow and they're already pretending that they're asleep when you come on the plane. And then there's those that are new to flying and they're just doing this looking around looking at the window making sure the window goes up and down and the seat belt buckles and they're just super anxious and then you sit down next to them and of course in my case I'm just worried that I'm gonna go into their seat we're all waiting for the waitress or the stewardess or the air traffic person to come by and and give us some Gatorade not Gatorade ginger ale because ginger ale does taste better in the air just saying And then the inevitable conversation begins. You all know how this goes, right? And it doesn't have to be in an airplane. You sit down and, well, the person's got the eye mask on. You know that they don't want to have anything to do with you. But then you start to introduce yourself. And I'm that guy. I'm like, hi, my name is Joshua Bell. It's nice to meet you. And in your head, you're thinking, and I'm going to turn around now and maybe not engage in discussion. And they introduce themselves, and they say, yes, I'm so-and-so. And, and what's the first question that you usually ask them? What do you do? Or where are you from? And that's where that conversation comes. Well, what do you do? Well, I work with a lot of people. Okay, that's creepy. And then you say, well, what kind of people? Well, usually, usually on their worst days. I usually get to meet them on their worst days, and I... Sometimes I get to be on their good days and celebrate with them. But most of the time, it's on bad days. 
it's in those places that I get to do what I love doing. And they go, wow, what are you? Uh, are you a, are you a stockbroker? Uh, worst days. Uh, yeah, I guess I could say that. Yeah. Uh. No, I'm a preacher. And usually it goes two ways. One, they say, well, it's nice to meet you. And the conversation goes into this whole thing. Well, I used to go to church when I was a kid. I've been meaning to find a church now, but, you know, I, I just, uh, it, and, and it also flips from there. I've been meaning to go to church, but I've just found that the church is full of, full of hypocrites. Okay, thank you. Thank God for that, because if we were all perfect people, we'd be out of business. And then the second part is, or they say, you know, I've just come to the realization as I get older in my life that I'm more spiritual than religious. Okay. I get it. And there's, there's a part of me that dies a little on the inside. Not because of that. But that as I'm having these conversations with these random total strangers, that I don't have the confidence or the boldness to say to them, well, I'm sorry that that happened to you when you were growing up. The congregation that I serve, uh, we would love you and spoil you rotten. And yeah, your voice would matter, and you could have dis disagreeing voices and conversations, but we still love you either way. But I don't want to sound too churchy, right? Because we're getting on a plane, and I'm only planning on being there for an hour and a half. But what would it look like if we were that bold? You know, I've been holding off on this for four weeks. And the part that's breaking my heart is, is that we are creating a culture in such a way that it's okay to be alone when something bad happens. That's not the image of Christ. That is not a place where the word gives way to the word. We've forgotten how to invite people to the presence of God. We have forgotten how to make people feel comfortable and welcome in such a way that says, it's okay if you don't come. We're not keeping score or attendance. We'd just love to have you here so that we're not waiting until the moment of someone's death to connect them to something greater than themselves. It's hard to be in the image of Christ. We don't want to sugarcoat it, but we don't also want to scare them away. In this particular passage of Scripture, the writer is saying that Jesus becomes that, that bridge, that gap in between our human self and the God self. You get to be that bridge like Jesus was with the angels. Think of how much power is in that. Think of how comfortable it should feel for us to invite others in the name of God to feel the love that you feel every time. And not just on Sunday, folks. This is an everyday journey. So I want you to think about it this way as we come to this end of the sermon. The writer here is wanting us to know that God created people for loving relationships with God's self. Sin, 
shatters that possibility. We mess up every single day. And, and nothing human can restore that. You understand that? That as a human being, you can't fix your sin. So what God did, what God did in the writer's understanding is, so God did all that was needed in Christ's name. He's the one that purified our sins. He's the one that sustains all creation. He is the exact representation of God, and we see that clearly in each and every one of your faces. And in that moment, when we acknowledge that, that's when the words give way to the word. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.